Hello, I'm Peter Baxter, as Editor of Developmental Medicine and Child Neurology. It's a great pleasure to introduce this podcast. In it, we're going to be discussing the article, Efficacy of the Ketogenic Diet in Lennox-Gastaut Syndrome, a retrospective review of one institution's experience and summary of the literature, which is by Monica Lemon, Naomi Tario, Yutzi Nyung, Wayne Reisig, James Rubenstein, and Eric Kossoff. It will be discussed by Dr. Monica Lemon, Pediatric Neurology Resident, and Associate Professor Eric Kossoff, both of John Hopkins, who are two of the authors, and Professor Helen Cross of the Institute of Heart Health London, who's also written a commentary on the article. Please, can we start with you, Eric, to discuss the background? One of the big topics, I think, for most of us in the ketogenic diet community is trying to find who should be placed on the diet. I think we're in an era of limited resources, both financial as well as dietitian time. So one of the hot topics is to try to find so-called indications for the diet. In our 2009 international consensus statement that I was a part of, as well as Professor Cross, our first table, in fact, listed some of the indications for the diet. And one thing that sort of happened to me anecdotally is as I was giving lectures about the diet and I discussed this table, one person came up to me and said, why is Lennox-Gastaut syndrome not listed? And I said, well, there's very limited data. And he says, well, that's surprising because I thought Lennox-Gastaut syndrome was the number one reason for starting children on the ketogenic diet. So that, that kind of led us to decide to really look in more detail uh, actually at what the response rate was for Lennox-Gastaut syndrome, number one, to see if perhaps we should be including it as an indication for the diet. But even number two, just to kind of say early, you know, what's the likelihood of a good response to the diet in this syndrome, which is often very intractable, very difficult to treat in what's been reported for most of the new and some of the established anticonvulsants. So it was really that question to me at a conference that led to this idea. And so we decided to really do this kind of in two ways, and Dr. Lemon will talk about that, but to look at our response, both at Johns Hopkins specifically, but also to look at what the literature, if you teased out Lennox-Gastaut patients, and we'll talk about how we tried to do that, was in terms of that response and see if they were similar. So that was the idea behind this study. Now I'm going to let Dr. Lemon talk a little bit more about what we found. Thank you, Aaron. So the study design was twofold. First, we started with a retrospective review of all children with Lennox-Gastaut at Johns Hopkins who were initiated on the diet from the years of 1994 to 2010. We chose to define Lennox-Gastaut as children who had multiple seizure types, including tonic, atonic, or atypical absence seizures, developmental delay, onset of seizures in the first decade of life, and EEG evidence of two to two and a half hertz spike in waves. To help frame those results, we also did a historical review of all the publications published on the ketogenic diet to date and did our best to tease out which patients in those large studies had Lennox-Gastaut. And we did that both by looking at the data itself but also by contacting authors for additional data. In terms of our results, our institutional data, we had 243 children who met our initial screening criteria for Lennox-Gastaut, meaning that they had multiple seizure types, someone in their history labeled them as Lennox-Gastaut, and of those, 71 met our criteria for the study. The median age of these kids was about three and a half years old. About a third of them had a lesional etiology of their LGS. 
while the other two-thirds had non-regional etiologies. We used an intent-to-treat analysis to take a look at outcomes at three, six, and 12 months. And in doing so, at three months, we found that about 75% of children had more than 50% reduction in their seizures at six months. About half of children had a greater than 50% reduction in their seizure at six months. And 44% had greater than 50% seizure reduction at a year. So that was the good news. The bad news is that many of these children did not achieve seizure freedom. And in our sample, in fact, only one child achieved seizure freedom at a year. Overall, the diet was quite well tolerated. Some children did experience side effects. The large majority experienced constipation, which was easily treated. And almost half of children were able to reduce the use of anticonvulsants while on the diet. We were additionally interested in what type of kid might be more likely to have a greater than 90% seizure reduction at 12 months, our so-called super responders. And we took a look at predictive factors, including how old they were when the diet was started, their gender, if they'd ever been on valproic acid, or if they were on valproic acid with, concurrently with the diet. In looking at those factors, we were not able to tease out any predictive factor that might predict a particularly robust response to the ketogenic diet. To frame our results, we then looked at the literature review. We found 18 ketogenic diet studies that had outcome data specific for LGS and a total of 189 children. Within that, we found 88 children who were at least labeled as LGS in these studies. Of course, the definition of LGS has evolved over time, and the criteria by which LGS was defined in these studies varied quite a bit. They were certainly heterogeneous. Nonetheless, when compiling these studies, their response was actually relatively similar to ours in that about half of children with LGS had more than 50% seizure reduction reported. What's interesting is that in this sample, more children achieved seizure freedom. And that's curious to us because we had such a low rate of seizure freedom, and it certainly makes us question whether or not the samples in these larger trials may have included children who, in fact, didn't have Lennox Gastaut or who perhaps had a type of epilepsy such as myoclonic ecstatic epilepsy, which is known to respond very well to the diet. So really the upshot of this paper is that in our sample, about half of kids responded to the diet at 12 months, and that was similar to what was seen in the literature. Very few children experienced serious side effects, though some did experience constipation. And these results are relatively similar to the overall response we see for all types of epilepsy in the ketogenic diet. Thank you. Helen, do you want to come in? Yes, I mean, I think the data produced from the paper is very valuable. I think many of us who are in clinical practice have long thought that Lennox-Gastaut was one of those syndromes that we should be utilizing the diet. And therefore, to have this overview, both from your own data and from the literature, it is very useful. What's interesting is, is several fold. I mean, yes, there's no doubt that definitions about Lennox-Gastaut vary from paper to paper when looking particularly at treatments, which makes it very difficult to, to look at data. Interestingly, you picked up also that there was a better seizure response amongst the list of, in the literature as opposed to your own study. Was there a consistent definition across the years of what was included as Lennox-Gastaut from your own data? Did you go back to the raw data or just tend to rely on what was produced in the records? That's a great question. We did go back in our own data to make sure we were consistent among years, and that's part of why we actually had such a large sample of almost 250 kids 
who were either labeled as Lennox Gusto or um, suspected Lennox Gusto, but our sample was much smaller when we actually looked back and defined it as we did in the paper. Sure. And the other thing that is often difficult is to know where in the natural history of the condition the diet may or may not work if we can ever get to that data. You mentioned in your summary that your average age of child and your sample was three and a half, which is actually quite a lot younger than what your definition was to include. Was that the age of onset or the age that they were actually trialed on the diet? Yeah, so that, that was the age at which the diet was started. We included a new correct. There's actually a misprint in the paper where it says under age one uh, was an inclusion, but it's actually, I think you correctly noted, Helen, in your editorial, over age one. Yeah. At diet onset. We, we didn't want to include the infants because even though some of them had been labeled Lennox Gusto, we suspect it's possible that some of them may have really been infantile spasms or some other perhaps early infantile encephalopathy. And, and the data goes back to the mid-90s, so you kind of wonder even a little bit exactly what these children may have had. Some of them are now older and lost to follow-up and have never had genetic testing. So we, we tried to get at least as good a definition as we could based on ILAE criteria. and That's sort of where we came up with the criteria, at least in this study. It's to be commended because it is incredibly difficult as time goes on where more syndromes are defined and therefore teasing out exactly what is a specific cohort can be incredibly difficult. And I think you're right to comment. The, the literature, what's out there, was extremely heterogeneous, which raised some questions. I mean, there's one study, not to point fingers, where there was a 29% seizure-free response rate and another one where it was zero. And so you kind of wonder exactly, were these kids truly LGS or not? But The other thing that is striking is, and to be commended probably by the center, is the age, you know, three and a half is relatively young, I would suspect, that actually ketogenic diet has been trialed in this group because so often, unfortunately, the diet may be considered to be a last resort. And I did notice that there are several anti-epileptic drugs trialed before the diet actually comes to use. Was there any flavor in the literature that it was tried much later in some of the studies, or was that information just not available? Well, I mean, we had the age range, you know, and, and some of them did go down to less than a year, mm-hmm. and they were included as LGS, which we, we chose not to do. Some of the studies had some teenagers, some around five or six. The, the average range was a little bit older, I think you're right than what we had in our sample. But, you know, we definitely have a, a younger group, I think, here at Johns Hopkins, I think, than so, uh, what I think a lot of people do report. I, I think you're right. I think the, the diet should be used probably sooner, especially in these children who you think may have LGS. Oh, I agree. And the other thing that was that because it's quite a long period of time over which you reviewed your data, and I presume your ketogenic diet protocol has remained relatively similar over that period of time and that you used the classical ketogenic diet. Right. So we decided for the purpose of this study to try to keep it as pure as possible to focus primarily on the classical ketogenic diet. We, we've had maybe, uh, I'd say maybe a dozen or so that have come to us for the modified Atkins diet. Uh, that have been labeled with Lennox-Gastaut syndrome, and that's a outpatient-initiated, non-fasting, gradual initiation of a basically restriction in carbohydrates that we typically now use for mostly adolescents and adults. But we did have some children with LGS that have been tried on that diet, but we chose not to include them to really keep the data pure. The MCT oil diet, as you use, Professor Cross, we, we use occasionally. We didn't have anybody that uh, had LGS that we had tried that on. 
so we didn't have to exclude them. And we haven't really used, there's another diet called the low glycemic index treatment, but we have only a scattering of patients, none of whom had LGS uh, to include. So these were really solely classic ketogenic diet patients. And over the last 15, 16 years that we've been doing it since the database started in 94 here, uh, our protocols remain relatively similar. I'd say maybe in sort of about 2004, 2005, we reduced our fasting period from 48 hours to 24 hours, mostly as a result of Christina Berquist from Philadelphia's data, where she basically demonstrated really didn't make much of a difference in long-term outcomes, and we would agree. So other than that, though, the protocol has remained relatively similar of a admission and a gradual introduction over four days in the classic ketogenic diet. Um, we did look to see if the ratio mattered. There was some some children who were quite young who we put on three-to-one ratios of fat to uh, carbohydrates and protein combined, and it didn't seem like there was at least a difference in response rate to that. But otherwise, these were standardized. So. I mean, the other thing that I think people may be misguided on sometimes is they feel that this is a particularly difficult group of children because of their learning and behavior difficulties, and therefore maybe, and I'm just sort of surmising, you know, things that I've heard, that they're perhaps a more difficult group to actually trial with our diet in. But I would take it that wasn't your experience. It's certainly not my experience, and it wasn't something that came over from the study. No, I, I would agree. These were, you know, very dedicated families. These were uh, children often who, well, by definition, had to have significant developmental delay and really not much of an issue with compliance or cheating that we saw. I think, you know, the families also came in with relatively reasonable expectations. I think as a result of the study, you know, which I think we had known before, Dr. Freeman, before me and myself, you know, often will counsel these families that the chances of seizure freedom is extremely low. Mm -hmm. uh, but the chance of a meaningful response, a reduction in medicine is good, you know, which is essentially what the results found. And I think that's just an important aspect of your study is the fact that it's dealing with the expectations when we start any new treatment in this particular group of patients and therefore make sure goals are appropriate and therefore the fact that they're unlikely to become seizure-free doesn't mean, as you say, that they can't have a meaningful result. Right. I mean, I think, you know, as you know, the parents still want it. They still want the miracle. Oh, you know, absolutely, yeah. We try to be honest. Yeah. Uh, it's happened, of course, <laughs> as often is the case. You know, once you publish something, then you have a few more patients who, you know, do not live up to your publication. We've had a few seizure-free responders who seem to have LGS, but... Still, when you look at them in the large population, it's extremely, extremely rare. Yeah. As opposed to, as, as Monica said, myoclonic astatic epilepsy, where a much larger number can become seizure-free. So it, it just gives some context, I think, when you're trying to counsel a family. And gets back to sort of my ultimate question, which is, you know, should Lennox-Gastaut syndrome be an indication for the diet? And I would probably say no. I mean, I think it would say that the diet may do well, but is it better than anything overall? Probably not. So I don't know if we should include it in that table. I think it's it shows the diet works, but is it does it work really well? Probably not. It's, it's good, but not great, I guess, is the way to think of it. But do you think we've really got data that any of the drugs work really well either? No, for sure. And we, we went back and looked at that, and they found about 40% response rate with a 0 to 1% seizure freedom. So similar. But, again, for the purposes of, you know, future, you know, do we list it as a true indication for the ketogenic diet. It, I guess it depends how you define an indication, but 
I think it, it reflects the large overall response rate of 50% responder rate. So um, have to think about it. You know, have to think about it, and maybe you'll think with me too, Helen. <laughs> do, we, do we put it in that table, or do we just say the diet works for it, but it's not better than any other syndrome? You know, do you lump it in the same category with myoclonic astatic epilepsy or GLUT1 or, you know, maybe even tuberous sclerosis? I don't know. Probably not as good. But, but I, I would agree with you on that. But I think it's something that, you know, it has to be regarded as another anticonvulsant drug and as something that is unlikely to make them worse and may well lead to benefits. Um, sure. And it should be considered not necessarily as the last resort, but within the whole discussion of where management's going in these children. Oh, absolutely. And what's very difficult is, of course, is monitoring the other things that parents so often comment on is about the degree of alertness and awareness, and whether that's due to reduction in anticonvulsant medication or whether that's due to an effect of the diet is all very difficult. But, of course, that's often a reason why parents want to continue with the diet. Right. No, and I think that's absolutely true, especially for these children who, you know, are obviously impaired to start. Parents are hoping for something to help them with their school performance or alertness. And as you know, you know, from your experience as well as ours, many of these children are on multiple medications, sometimes three or four, and uh, that may be a primary reason for the families to try the diet. Even knowing that the chances of seizure freedom are low, the families may say, well, that's fine, but I really want to try the diet to get rid of some of these medicines. Sure. One other thing about the study, I mean, did you find that most of your children that you've done historically were orally fed, or did they did they have nasogastric or gastrostomy tubes in many of them, or was it a split? That's a great question. Let's see, I'm looking through. What do you think, Miles? I get the sense it was probably evenly split. Yeah. Um, we didn't record that data specifically, but a large number of children were orally fed and actually tolerated it well in that setting. Yeah. That would have been good to look at. I don't think we, yeah, that wasn't a characteristic we looked at. Uh, you know, some studies have shown that those children do seem to respond maybe a bit better, you know, for unclear reasons, maybe compliance or otherwise, but uh, we didn't look at that specifically. Maybe something we can look at in the future. Yeah. No, I think you've covered an awful lot, actually. You've covered a lot about the diet and the details of the diet. You mentioned about the table and the fact that the 16% responders in the literature search seem to be largely one group taking that group out as an outlier, everyone else would be much more in line with your article's results, wouldn't they? Yeah. True. They had a large number. They had the largest, and they had 75 in that study, I know. So yeah. it's hard to, hard to look the other way with such a large number that had reported LGS. Actually, more than our number. You know, we had 71, they had 75, even though, you know, their study was not looking at LGS specifically. So, But you look at the results, and it's a little, it's a little hard to know what to make of them, but... But it's also, you know, if you look at that, a 75 out of 199 in the study, and that's a relatively high proportion of individuals with epilepsy being treated with Lantz-Gastaut syndrome. The more I do, the more I think it's in its pure form relatively rare, and it's making up a small but very significant and complex number of my, uh, my clinic. And one thing that's interesting, you know, Helen, I suspect you have the same experience. Whenever I speak to my adult colleagues and you know, we'll talk about patients with LGS, and they say, well, what is LGS? <laughs> you know, and, and we'll say, well, this is this description. And say, well, how do you know it's not a SCN1A mutation or POLG or, you know, CDKL5? And, you know, they can certainly look like that, too. And we just just starting to delve into all the genetics of these conditions. And I think as time goes on, I think the percentages of LGS are dropping. 
as they're probably being reclassified into other syndromes. But it's an interesting sort of phenomenon I think we're seeing that, especially my adult colleagues are very reluctant to call EEGs and just clinical scenarios as LGS. And maybe they're right. Maybe we should be just, you know, like almost like infantile spasms. You can't just stop there. You need to delve deeper. I think that's the increasing awareness that actually Lennox-Gusto does appear to be an age-related syndrome. And it was Otahara who first, you know, you had your early infantile epileptic encephalopathies and then through another age group, infantile spasms, and ultimately another age group, Lennox-Gusto. And whereas some of the others, particularly with known genetic defects, there are very specific, perhaps, clinical phenotypes that are described. Lennox-Gusto appears to be one of these syndromes that has many different etiologies. And I should think that's probably where the new classification will come into its fore to try and help us understand it a little better. Right. You've covered the Atkins diet, which I'm sure quite a lot of people would like to hear about. And it was interesting you were saying about reserving it for the older age group. Uh, what's your experience of the modified Atkins diet? I mean, we've used it in younger children, but I think the value of it, at least in our experience in the last two to three years, seems to be sort of heading in the older direction for teens and adults. But, yeah, we'll, we'll use it in younger children if the situation is right, the very complicated family dynamics. Um, they don't want to be admitted. They don't want the rules and restrictions, the weighing and measuring. We're starting to look at it for regions of the U.S. and maybe even the world where there's very limited or no dietitian support. And so we've done it in a few children with LGS. In fact, we, we reported our results in a boy from Honduras who had what appeared to be, at least by definition, LGS, who did very well just with his neurologist implementing the modified Atkins diet there. It's a therapy we're starting to use. We're still trying to figure out where it's best used for, but at least for the purposes of this study, we, we chose not to include those kids just to try to keep the data, especially comparing to the literature. Uh, there's really nothing on modified Atkins diet for Lennox Gusteau, so we wanted to sort of keep apples, apples, oranges, oranges, and just at least for this study, look you know, specifically at the ketogenic diet. Helen, do you use the Atkins diet much? We are beginning to use it in the older group, and I think there is an issue as to what's classed as a true, you know, pure ketogenic diet and what is the more sort of what we would call a more relaxed diet, such as the modified Atkins, and there is an issue about the older children perhaps being able to tolerate that better or adhere to it better, and understandably the adults. We use more of medium-chain triglyceride diet, which is a ketogenic diet. I think some have listed it as an alternative, but it is a ketogenic diet. And we tend to look at the individual and decide whether a classical diet may be more suited to their dietary habits as opposed to an MCT diet, having demonstrated that we can't demonstrate any difference in their efficacy. But again, the MCT diet is more bulk of food, and therefore it may be suited to the older patient than the classical diet, which is easier to administer in the younger patient. So I think there's lots of things for us to determine um, as to who will suit different diets better. Yeah, no, I th and I think for, for LGS, it's, and then maybe that's why we have so few, you know, it's really rarely, at least in these children I see, even when they become adolescents, not much of a compliance issue. Again, the families really, I think, are in charge. These are quite delayed kids. So I've had some adolescents where the parents are trying to decide between classic and modified Atkins and at the end of the day, you say, you know, they're probably so similar and there's really not much benefit to modified Atkins for this particular child and we'll kind of lean towards classic ketogenic diet. And I think for certain other syndromes that we're starting to look at, Absence, refractory JME, where it's much more functional adolescence, yeah. uh, that's where I think maybe Atkins may fit a role. But, 
you know, because I was also a little surprised how few there were. I mean, it wasn't hard to not include those children. There just weren't many of them who yeah. went with LGS who went on Atkins, I think. But may just reflect the nature of LGS more than anything else. Yeah. We've now come to the end of our podcast. Many thanks indeed to Monica Lemon, Eric Kosthoff, and Helen Cross for an informative, very interesting, and erudite discussion. The ketogenic diet is such an important treatment modality, and Lennox Gastaut syndrome such a difficult epilepsy to treat that listening to world experts talking about them is a great opportunity both for clinicians and for families. I can imagine that everyone else will get as much out of this as I have. Just to remind anyone listening that the article itself is by Lemon et al. It is entitled Efficacy of the Ketogenic Diet and Lennox Gastaut Syndrome, a retrospective review of one institution's experience and summary of the literature and it's due out in the May issue of Developmental Medicine and Child Neurology. Thank you very much again.